Our scripture lesson today is taken from John chapter 12, uh, beginning reading at verse 12 and reading through verse 26 with particular attention to 20 through 26. That's found on page 1,238, 1,238. I'm going to read uh, beginning at verse 12, which deals with the triumphal entry uh, through verse 19 but I'm not going to uh, comment on that, even though that's the next portion in the series on John's Gospel that I've been going through. We did verses 1 through 12 uh, last Sunday morning, but uh, verses 12 through 19 concern the triumphal entry, and you get a sermon about that every year, and in fact, uh, Pastor Lubbers uh, chose verses 12 through 19 as his uh, text just three months ago on uh, April 10th as uh, for his uh, Palm Sunday sermon. And uh, I'm not going to attempt to try to improve on anything that he said. So I'll read it, but uh, our attention begins really at the uh, very end of verse 19 and verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew, Philip, told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my Father, will honor. Thus far the reading of God's word. Beloved of the Lord, you recall in our study of the Gospel of John that immediately after the raising of Lazarus uh, described in John chapter 11, the uh, news was brought to the scribes and Pharisees, to the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they were extremely frustrated at uh, the popularity of Jesus, saying, uh, everyone's going to believe in him, we've got to do something. And the high priest in that fateful year, Caiaphas, Caiaphas uh, said, uh, he's got to die. 
And from that time on, they began to look for an opportunity to kill Jesus. Although at first they thought uh, not during the feast, not during Passover, because uh, Jerusalem was so crowded with people and Jesus was popular among them. And they, uh, they feared the crowds. But uh, then Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, hailed as a king, riding on a donkey, which uh, indicated fulfillment of a prophecy. Behold, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, and so forth. And again, the crowds are enthusiastic and uh, praising him and so forth. And now <laughs> they, uh, they said in John 11, all the world will believe in him, or everyone will believe in him. Now they say in the past tense, all the world has gone after him and uh, they are more frustrated. And actually, because of Palm Sunday, they move up their plans and are ready to put him to death even during the Passover, which was exactly Jesus' plan. Uh, He is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and he wants to be uh, offer his sacrifice willingly of his own accord. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own. And he even chooses the time. Their plan was to wait until Passover was over. And he says, I have a way of changing your mind. And uh, part of that was uh, his triumphal entry, changed their mind, that, and it resulted in him being uh, uh, crucified on, uh, on Good Friday, on, on, on Passover. So... Uh, that's uh, what we're dealing with here. Uh, the Pharisees say all the world, all the cosmos uh, is the word used in Greek, meaning they're, they're everyone they know, their whole world has uh, seemingly uh, gone after Jesus. And uh, John immediately, after we read that at the end of verse 19, begins to describe Greeks coming to Jesus who are representative of the world. And uh, that's what we want to look at this morning, these uh, Greeks coming to Jesus. Now, it is a curious event for a couple of reasons. It's curious uh, uh, somewhat because John is the only gospel writer that tells us this happens uh, right after the triumphal entry. None of the other gospel writers uh, mention it. It's curious because John has not mentioned the Greeks any time previously, and other than mentioning that they asked to see Jesus, he really doesn't say anything about them. He doesn't tell us uh, how they responded, whether they got to see Jesus, or how they responded to Jesus, uh, who are they, what are they, where do they come from, and what, what happened to them after they made this request. Uh, John considers their coming and asking to be significant but then he immediately drops them. And so we wonder what's going on, and that's what we want to look into today. Uh, Who are these Greeks, and uh, uh, why does uh, Jesus uh, deal with them as he does? Uh, We're told uh, that he, uh, in verse 23, he answered them, but uh, we want to see uh, just what exactly that answer means. Well, the word that John uses for the Greeks is a a general term that might apply to any Gentile from the Greek-speaking world. Uh, You may recall that at this time, politically and militarily, the Romans were in charge, 
but culturally, the Greeks had conquered the, uh, the ancient world. <coughs> it was their language and their culture that uh, dominated the Roman Empire, even though Rome ruled militarily and politically, uh, they had <coughs> conquered uh, culturally. And so these, these are Gentiles of Greek culture. They could come from anywhere. We know that on uh, Pentecost, they came from all different kinds of places throughout the Roman Empire, and presumably that is uh, the case here as well. The term, uh, however, uh, doesn't refer, uh, we, can, we can limit it somewhat and say that these are Greeks who are willing and interested uh, in worshiping God. They're there for the feast. And that sort of narrows down the kind of Greeks that would uh, come to uh, two classes of Greeks, either God-fearing Gentiles, of whom the Scriptures have uh, a good deal to say, or proselytes, again, which the uh, New Testament uh, mentions from place to place. <clears throat> God-fearing Gentiles were people like the uh, Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius the Centurion and Lydia the seller of purple and a few others. Uh, Many of the Gentile converts to Christianity in the book of Acts are described as devout Gentiles or God-fearing Gentiles or worshipers of God. Uh, the, the scattering of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire led to Jews uh, witnessing to their faith, and many Gentiles, Greeks, uh, were fascinated by the morality of of Judaism and by the monotheism of Judaism and so forth, uh, the uh, lack of idolatry among them, or the worship of images and so forth. And uh, many Gentiles began to read about it and become interested, and these are the, the devout or the, the God-fearing Gentiles. Some of them took a further step and became proselytes, and proselytes were ones who actually converted to the religion of Judaism through circumcision and through uh, participation in all the rituals. Proselytes were allowed to enter fully into the life of the temple. There were no restrictions on them other than uh, they couldn't do what Levites were uh, commanded to do. But uh, uh, the, uh, the God-fearing Gentiles were limited. They, they could only come to the temple and uh, be in the outer court called the uh, Court of the Gentiles. Now, the term that John uses could imply both, both groups, God-fearing Gentiles, proselytes. We really can't distinguish, and it really doesn't matter because whether it's either or both, the significance of their presence remains the same. Uh, uh, these Greeks represent the world. As uh, it says at the end of verse 19, the whole world is going after them, after Christ, and uh, here is an example of the world, the Greek Gentile world coming after Christ. That's what we are to understand. Now, John's gospel is one that emphasizes Jesus' relationship with the world quite frequently. Uh, the word world, which is the Greek word uh, cosmos, is, uh, is used over 50 times. When we use the word cosmos, we think of the universe usually, but uh, uh, their, it also meant their universe, but their universe was uh, more local. It was the world as, as they knew it. Uh, it, meant it. They used the word to simply refer to everybody that they, they knew of. 
And uh, John's, uh, John's gospel uses that word 50 times. Uh, for example, uh, uh, we read in John 1 that he came into the world and the world did not know him. And uh, we read he's the light of the world. And John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And uh, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and Jesus says, as the Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world. Uh, in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he uh, prays that the church might be united so that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. And so you have this emphasis uh, throughout John's gospel uh, upon uh, the world and the fact that Christ, uh, God is doing something in Christ for the world uh, scholars uh, are of the opinion, and I'm certainly in no position to contradict them, that uh, John's uh, intended audience is a, a Gentile audience, that he, he uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more uh, directed toward uh, uh, Jewish uh, people and converts from Judaism, uh, but John uh, wrote a little later and, and wrote with a, a Gentile audience in mind. And so our text shows now uh, this uh, emphasis on the world in that these people from the world are coming to Jesus. They want to see Jesus, and by that we should understand that they want to have an up-close and personal uh, meeting with him. They certainly uh, probably saw him during the triumphal entry from a distance, but now they want to get close and, and they want to see him. By the way, uh, this verse, uh, we, uh, uh, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, in the King James, I think it's, sir, we would see Jesus. I've been told, I've never seen it, but I've been told that some churches uh, inscribe that on the pulpit, on the back of the pulpit, so that when the minister comes and stands in the pulpit, he sees right in front of him that inscription, sir, we would see Jesus, a uh, request of the congregation to the minister, show us Jesus, uh, pre preach Christ. Uh, uh, I'm not suggesting that you ought to do that, but I do think that that's something you ought to expect from your ministers and uh, something that you ought to pray will uh, be done by your ministers, that they will show you Jesus. <clears throat> well, uh, we don't know what emboldened these people to make this request. Uh, certainly the miracles of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus, the triumphal entry, but also perhaps the teaching of Jesus that they had heard about. For example, when Jesus cleans the temple or cleanses the temple, uh, he says uh, it might, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That and the emphasis on uh, the word world in the gospel certainly would make them interested in Jesus. Now we shouldn't be surprised to see this uh, it's something that continues to happen to this day, that the, the world is interested in Jesus. Now, not by nature. By nature, we hate both God and our neighbor. But uh, God is doing a work of building his church, and that church often begins with God creating interest in people's hearts uh, to hear the gospel so that they want to come those who uh, do pioneer mission work, uh, mission work in places where the gospel hasn't been known before, uh, often say that they, they meet people groups who say to them, we've been waiting for you. Uh, where, where have you been? Uh, I remember uh, the Lemihus, when they were here, uh, talked about uh, that happening in one village in Pau Pau, New Guinea. Uh, people have been waiting to hear about Jesus. Uh, 
there's a great deal being written now about Muslims uh, having dreams about Jesus as an introduction to Jesus, and as a result of that dream, then seeking out uh, Christian uh, ministers or gospel presentations uh, on the radio or the internet and so forth. This is God awakening in people a, a, a sense of emptiness with regard to their own life, a desire for something more, and that uh, prepares them then to, uh, to hear the gospel. I was always delighted to read uh, the newsletters of M Middle East Reform Fellowship and uh, Reverend Victor Atala because every, nearly every month he describes uh, the missionary efforts among the Muslims and how they just can't keep up with all the responses that they have to their uh, podcasts and radio broadcasts and other ministries. Well, John tells us that Jesus answered them. What was his answer? Well, he says, it says in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, this is a curious answer. <laughs> Curious, because if, if John didn't say Jesus answered them, uh, we might say Jesus is ignoring them. Uh, Jesus is talking about something else. What, what has this got to do with the Gentiles? Uh, it uh, makes no reference to the Greeks, uh, and Jesus makes no reference to them here or later on but it is evident that Jesus considers the existence of their request to be significant. Uh, it is what some scholars have called a trigger event. You know, when you pull a trigger, then that makes something else happen, and a trigger event is something that makes something else happen. And uh, here uh, Jesus is saying, the fact that these people are asking about me, the fact that the world has begun to come to me, means my hour has come. Now, this is a new development. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been saying, it's not my hour yet. He said that to his mother in uh, John chapter 2 when they changed the water in, he changed the water into wine. Uh, you know, why do you trouble me? My, this, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7 and verse 30 and chapter 8 verse 20, his enemies tried to uh, capture him and, and uh, arrest him but uh, he was just able to walk away from them because his hour had not come. But now here in verse 23, and again uh, later on in verse 27, he says, my hour has come. My hour has come. And uh, we don't, uh, John doesn't tell us the connection. You know, what is, why, is, why would the asking of the Greeks to see Jesus mean that his hour has come to be glorified. Well, John doesn't tell us. However, I think uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a good idea as to why, what is the connection between these two things. In uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that uh, parenthesis, uh, those parenthesis chapters where Paul deals with the problem of, of uh, God's promises to the Jews uh, seemingly not being fulfilled, uh, he talks about the fact that the, the failure of Israel to embrace Jesus and the fact that Israel rejected Jesus, except for a small remnant, uh, the fact that they rejected him and failed to receive him uh, means riches for the Gentiles. God uh, turns his back on Israel 
because they have rejected him and then turns his face toward the nations and to the world. Romans 11 verse 12 says, their failure, meaning Israel's failure, means riches for the Gentiles. Now God does that in part to uh, provoke the Israel to jealousy and uh, there are those who feel that uh, at the end uh, a large, there's still going to be a large gathering of Jews uh, to Jesus uh, as a result of jealousy or something, uh, but uh, we'll leave that for another time. But uh, the idea is that the hour has come for Jesus to die. That's the ultimate rejection of the Jews of Jesus during his earthly ministry, and uh, the rejection of Jesus means the Gentiles uh, are on the horizon, and here they are on the horizon. They're, they're there, it's beginning, it's just a small beginning, but it's, it's the beginning of the world coming to Jesus, and that means indeed the hour has come for him to be glorified. But now there's another perplexing thing in this passage, and that is that immediately after he's saying, my hour has come to be glorified, he starts speaking about death. And, he's, uh, and about hating his life and so forth. And he states it in a general principle, but he's talking about himself. When he says a seed has to die, he's talking about the fact that he has to die. And in order for his ministry to be fruitful, uh, he has to die uh, first. And so uh, he's saying, my glorification is through death. My glorification is through a, a hating of my life and uh, a, a dying away of my life. And we might wonder, how can a, a shameful death by crucifixion mean glorification? Well, that's not hard to figure out. Uh, his death accomplishes our salvation, which is a glorious thing. Uh, out of his death will come something good, the salvation of his people. His death atones for our sins and uh, turns aside the wrath of God, propitiates the anger of God. His death pays the ransom by which we are set free. His death is uh, how a just and holy God shows mercy to sinners while yet fulfilling all the demands of justice and righteousness. Uh, such an act of love, such a dying is truly glorious. Now Jesus explains this as a general principle. Uh, you know, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground. He's stating it generally. It applies to him. It applies to him first of all, but he, he states it as a general principle because it doesn't just apply to him. It applies to everyone who follows him. It applies to you who believe in Jesus. You also need to uh, be like him and die in order to become fruitful. Now, what does that mean? Well, J.I. Packer refers to this as uh, the law of the harvest. And he writes, uh, quote, every experience of pain, grief, frustration, disappointment, and being hurt by others is a little death. When we serve the Savior in our world, there are many such deaths to be died. But the call to us is to endure, since God sanctifies our endurance for fruitfulness in the lives of others." End of quote. He's saying all our experiences of frustration, disappointment, being hurt, uh, all the suffering that we have to endure, 
whether it's voluntarily taking up a cross or something imposed upon us like a sickness, all the suffering that we have to do, these are little deaths that we endure. And as we die and experience those and remain faithful in those experiences of death, then that causes fruit to abound in our lives, fruit not only for our own benefit, but fruit especially in the lives of others. When we remain faithful in suffering, when we patiently persevere, our lives bear witness to the reality of the gospel and reap a harvest of good, especially in the lives of others. I think I may have mentioned to you once, but I'll mention to it again because there's always new people listening, and that is that in my pastoral ministry, I have often seen people dying, people who receive a terminal diagnosis and know that they only have a few weeks or a month or so to live. And uh, on a number of occasions, I have observed those people give a powerful witness, perhaps the most powerful witness of their life to the truth of the gospel. Uh, their children, their grandchildren, their brothers and sisters, their nieces and nephews, their neighbors, their fellow church members, all see this person with this terminal diagnosis, not depressed, not uh, discouraged, but rejoicing that they soon be with the Lord. And uh, it is a marvelous witness to see, uh, to, to see that, that, that faith in that person is real and, and they are able to rejoice in sufferings, to count it all joy when you suffer various trials and, and uh, through those trials know that God is working all things together for good. Uh, you can give your most powerful testimony of your life in situations like that. It's also the case in church history that when Christians are martyred for the faith, as one of the early church fathers uh, said, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because those persecutors who witness Christians dying, uh, being, being put to death, burned at the stake or whatever, uh, singing hymns while the flames uh, lick their bodies and uh, forgiving those who have uh, put them to death and so forth, uh, that deeply troubles the persecutors and they can't uh, be at peace until they find uh, peace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so uh, God is calling us also to a life of, uh, of self-denial. Now, I know that some of you, I don't know how many, but some of you may be thinking, I don't know if I want a life like that. I don't know if I want a life of joyfully accepting suffering and grief and pain and, and, and a little death every day. That doesn't sound to me like a very attractive life. I, I don't want that kind of life. I want, I want a life where I'm happy. <laughs> I want a life where I can enjoy things. I, I want to earn a lot of money, and I want to have a big house, and I want to have a fancy car, and I want a second home, a vacation home, and a, I, I want uh, to be able to go uh, uh, water skiing on Sunday. I don't want to have to go to church, you know. I, I, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want this life of of dying every day, a little death, and, and accepting it graciously, and and rejoicing and suffering, that doesn't sound very appealing. Well, Jesus has a warning for you. And that warning is that if you love your life, you are destroying your life. He says, 
uh, he who loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that, that's somewhat difficult to understand. What, what does it mean to hate your life? Well, in this instance, uh, it means uh, a matter of uh, priorities. He's talking about uh, loving one thing more than another. Uh, the word hate is used sometimes literally and sometimes uh, metaphorically, and this is one of those metaphorical instances uh, which uh, Jesus uses on other occasions. For example, in, in Matthew uh, 10, Matthew 10:37, he says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, there it's a matter of priorities. Who do you love more? Do you love God or do you love father and mother more? Well, if you love father and mother more than you love Jesus, you're not worthy of him. Well, in a parallel passage in Luke's gospel, he says, if anyone would follow me, they must hate father and mother. Now, which is it, love more or hate? Well, it's, it's not either or, it's both. It, it's one explaining the other. When the, the word hate is used there, it's used as hyperbole. It's exaggeration for the sake of effect to make you uh, stop and, and think. Uh, you find the same thing in the Old Testament. Uh, in uh, Genesis uh, 29, verse 30, it says, uh, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, we know that he loved Leah. He had seven children by Leah, six sons and a daughter, and he buried Leah in the family tomb, which he didn't do for Rachel, and, and he could have. Uh, he certainly loved uh, Leah, but, but uh, he loved Rachel more, perhaps too much, uh, maybe idolizing her, but that's for another time. Uh, but in the very next verse, where in one verse, in verse uh, 29, 30, it says he loved Leah more, loved Rachel more than Leah, it says, when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Uh, oh, which is it? Loved more or hated? Well, again, uh, it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of uh, priority. And uh, that's how we are to understand it uh, here as well, where it says you have to hate your life. It means that if you, if you love your life more than you love Jesus, then uh, you will lose your life. Now, it's interesting that the uh, New King James uh, says will lose as a future tense. Uh, my Greek isn't very good, but it is good enough to read what other people who understand the Greek better than me uh, say, and, and that uh, in, the, in the original Greek, it's not future tense. It's present tense. He who loves his life is losing his life, and the word lose literally means uh, to destroy he who lives for self is destroying his life. Now, New King James is not wrong. Uh, it's also the case that you will lose your life. But Jesus is saying more than that. Not only uh, living for self uh, uh, will result in a bad end, but it, it's presently destroying your life. And, and that's easy to see, I think, if you look at uh, uh, drug addicts or uh, alcoholics. They are presently uh, by their addiction, by their idolatry of drink or drugs, uh, they are destroying their lives now, and they will lose their lives in the future if they do not repent. Uh, they are destroying their lives. But it's, it's not just the, the drug addict. It's uh, not just the, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the, the, the gambler or the uh, others who are... Uh, uh, alcoholics, uh, 
smokers, gamblers, gluttons, sexual addictions, uh, all of those things uh, are a way in which people are presently destroying their lives and uh, shortening their lives in many cases, ruining their lives. And as a result, uh, already marriages are falling apart and homes are falling apart and uh, people's health is ruined and, and they die an early death. Uh, but it's not just, it's not just the, the drug addicts who have this problem. It's anyone who idolizes self, who puts self first. Uh, people can do that in very respectable manners and uh, simply uh, not uh, drawing the attention of the world but drawing God's attention. Uh, if, if you love yourself and, and want to serve yourself more than, than serve God, you have an idol and that idol is more important to you. You're violating the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You are your own God. And even though uh, the world uh, thinks you're a, an honorable person, a hardworking person who has uh, grown rich through all your hard labor and so forth, uh, the fact that you love money uh, more than you love God means you are destroying your life now and you will lose your life in the future. But Jesus tells us this now because there's still hope for you, that if you repent and uh, dethrone the idol, as we sang in our opening hymn, dethrone that idol and put Christ on the throne, then uh, there is forgiveness and grace. If we get our pri priorities right and follow Christ patiently, enduring suffering of all kinds, the Father will honor you and honor you with life now and eternal life throughout all eternity. May God give us grace to believe and follow Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, warning to uh, take self off the throne of our lives and uh, to stop idolizing our own will. Help us to be like Jesus, to say, not my will, but your will be done and to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you will provide all that we need. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.